Ah, the wine business. Like restaurants, it's one of those industries that exerts a romantic pull, but often then devours the entrepreneur. But not today's guest, David Page. David was fully aware of the pitfalls of the wine business, but during his search back in 2010, he came across one that occupied what he saw as a growing niche within the local wine industry, and one with recurring revenue. Vines management for the small private vineyards of Silicon Valley's elite. Talk about one of those businesses you'd never guess exists. Well, David bought that business as a first-time acquisition entrepreneur, and in the intervening years has quintupled it. And, I gather, had a lot of fun in the process. Aside from the fun angle to David's story, I want to highlight another point. David bought a really small business, Tiny Team. The first month, David is delivering wine to the back door of local grocery stores from his own car. He was really in the muck and bullets, as he says. But it's what he wanted. He expected to get in there, put his back into it, learn every corner of the business, and figure out how to grow it. This goes against the exhortation you've heard a lot on this podcast that you need to acquire a business of a certain size so that day one, you can be working on the business rather than in it. And while I certainly understand that, David's story is just the latest of many examples where the acquisition entrepreneur got in there, operated a small business, and made it grow. See if that resonates with you after listening to this interview with David Page, owner of Post and Trellis. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. David Page, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Hello, good to see you. I've been working on you for a year, David. <laughs> so this is a minor victory to have you here sitting in front of me. Thank you for coming on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. We met at the ETA meetup in San Francisco last, I guess, November, December. You are Bay Area based, as I was up until just a few months ago. And you acquired and own a business called Post and Trellis. It's a wines and vines business, as you called it. You bought it in 2011, and it's now a much larger operation than it was back then. So I'm eager to share this uh, really interesting business story with the audience. Please start us off, David, with a little personal history. How did you originally come to the US? Sure. Well, um, uh, yeah, it is an interesting story because I guess I started out in England and I managed to get myself to a good university where I had a, a lot of choice what I could do. Um, and, uh, you know, that point when you're leaving university, there's lots of branches right out in front of you and you're trying to figure out which one to crawl along. 
Um, and there were several on that kind of tree of, of, of kind of uh, options that just did not appeal. Um, most of them were around kind of finance or what's called the city of London. I just didn't, didn't dig the whole kind of pinstripe formality. Um, it seemed like a, a very, very staid version of a, of a kind of a, a very, very private school and a, and a snobby place. It just, it just didn't gel with me at all. So, um, <laughs> I had grown up with my father running a small business at home. Um, and so lunch times when I was around were, were kind of discussing little facets of, of his business, um, and the world. So yeah, I felt more affinity for commerce, more affinity for business, um, and decided to kind of ignore the, the professions as they were called, um, after university and, and kind of, and head leftwards. Um, yeah, and that, that made for a really, really fascinating kind of first 10 years of a career. I, I started off working um within the software industry um and specifically sales um the reason being that i wanted to earn as much money as possible and it was, it was a very well paid um kind of junior position um but also because i wanted to learn more and more about other businesses i was aware that i had seen the world kind of through the very narrow lens of my father's operation um, and by being a software sales guy i basically got to go in to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of companies and say, okay, how do you do business? How do you acquire customers? What do you do with the customers? How do you service the customers? How do you operate? How do you distribute? Whatever the model was in all different sectors and just talk to them about their business and see how I could help. Um, we had a, just a, a little software utility solution um, that could help various businesses in various ways. And so it was a, it was a really good exploration in, in business. It also became a a fantastic passport because it offered me the opportunity to get on a plane to San Francisco. They, um, they wanted someone to set up their American operation and age 27, 28, I managed to convince them that was me. Um, oh. probably, probably through the paucity of other good options, but, um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it got me on a plane. They, they in fact wanted to set up in LA and I knew from, um, from talking about, I just didn't want to live in LA. Um, but San Francisco sounded cool. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I managed to uh, twist their arms and tell I, them. I that know all, that decision. Yeah, exactly. Um, all serious technology companies have a have a base in in Silicon Valley, and surely that's where we should be. And so they they bought that, they bought me, and they sent us off. Um, and there was a few of us who came over to to set up um, kind of old Brits who uh, who had a had a really fun adventure. But after a few more years of that, I suddenly looked around and said, "Having great fun." had five different jobs in two different countries, but suddenly I've been at this one company for 10 years and, and it's time to do something else. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, went off and actually went traveling around the world for a year. It's something that English people do a fair bit. They take a little, uh, a little sabbatical pack a backpack. They, they, they do it before or right after university though, don't they? Yeah. So there's a gap year, which I did too, but, um, those folks that have done a gap year tend to kind of try and repeat at some point in their lives because <laughs> uh, it's such fun and it's such a, it's yeah. a great, great, great thing to do. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I got on the road again, came back and at that point I'd basically packed everything I owned up into a, the trunk of a, of a kind of a, of an old car in a goat barn south of San Jose, um, <laughs> so that it wouldn't, uh, it, it wouldn't disappear. But, but the idea was I can come back from my year off and live anywhere I want in the world, do whatever I want. Um, I was 30, something ish, but unmarried, uh, no kids. 
Um, so yeah, I had that, that wonderful dose of freedom, but decided on, on completion of that trip that I actually wanted to come back to the Bay Area. That was my kind of heart and home by now. Um, and that it was a great place to, uh, to kind of pursue a profession. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, I loved, loved England. It's a great place. Um, I love going back, but I don't want to live there again. Um, mm -hmm. and I adore America. Um, I think there's some serious iniquities and, uh, and kind of issues with American society, but, um, overall, um, it's a great place to, to kind of make a career and make a life and, and provide for a family. So, so yeah, I decided to come back and, um, did one more startup, uh, for a year or two until we pivoted to agriculture. And then suddenly I realized I had absolutely nothing in common with a corn farmer in Iowa. Um, so exited stage left from the, the startup and, uh, and by that time I still had some savings. I've always been a, a saver, not a spender. Um, when I was working within kind of the software world, I guess I had like 50, 60 guys working for me who all outspent me. Um, they were all mm. kind of driving fancy cars and kind of living the good life. And I was living a good life too, but I just wasn't a spender. So I'd, I'd steadily been saving away knowing, I guess, that not only did I want to pay for future trips, um, but also perhaps pay for a, you know, a future business venture. So at that point, I started looking for, for businesses to buy. That would have been about 2010. Um, and let, let, let me jump in with a couple of questions here, David. So um, first of all, quick aside on the Bay Area, uh, having lived there myself and been drawn there myself, it is a special place despite the well-publicized problems. And um, it, it does have a a certain magnetic pull. I, I love that you um, took a gap year and saw many places around the world and, and still felt like it, it deserved your, uh, your residence. <laughs> it's, I think that's quite a, quite a statement. Um, this startup that you came back and did, were you one of the co-founders or were you in sales, uh, sales operation at that, at that job? No, it was uh, one of the senior management team. There was only, I don't know, 30 or 40 of us by the time uh, I left. Um, it, it subsequently got bought by um, Monsanto, uh, of, of all people. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, at the time there wasn't uh, there wasn't that many of us, and, and I was the VP of sales and you know, running a small team as we were trying to figure out which market to operate in um, and which markets we could uh, we could kind of make headway, and we just didn't really know uh, which which areas to kind of to direct ourselves at. So anyway, yeah, it was a it was a a good choice and a, and a kind of a good. Uh, a good business, but it didn't work out personally. Um, okay. As you know, you're, you're kind of edging toward your entrepreneurial journey. Um, you are somebody who's attracted to business. I mean, you made that very clear. Your father ran a business and you're in San Francisco and mm -hmm. you're working in tech. So did you ever, did you ever entertain any ideas, start from scratch ideas, tech related ideas? Oh, really? I think by then I'd, I'd, I'd scratched that itch and had enough. Mm. Um, I'd, I think software for me was a, was a way to learn about the world rather than a kind of an end in itself. Um, and um, I think another software company, um, I did interview it a few, but none of them, none of them pulled at me at all. Um, and then, yeah, when I started looking at the companies for sale, um, and I knew that, that companies kind of were bought and sold, remember that, you know, the ETA world was, was much, much kind of thinner and less kind of professional and much less well-resourced than it is now. There was no search funder network. There was no Acquiring Minds podcast. So I was standing in the dark a little bit, um, but I did know one little jewel and that was that companies sold. Um, 
not just because I'd seen a couple of bigger companies that I'd worked for sold, but also um, I'd seen my father have a have a go at buying a very, very small company. Um, and that kind of triggered a, just a memory in me or a future memory in me um, that, that this was something that was possible to do. So yeah, I literally got on the internet and found biz, my, biz buy sell or you know whatever they were called in those days, BizGen, buy, not gov, something I don't know. There were some really weird sites, <laughs> but they were um, yeah. they were out there selling businesses and, and started looking at what was interesting. And and because I had a uh, a relatively good breadth of commercial experience uh, and a decent amount of kind of actual management and personal sales experience, I, I kind of backed myself to to be able to pull it off um, and to be able to step into a world where because I knew it wasn't going to be, as we said, software. So whichever company I bought, I was not going to be the expert on day one. I was going to need to listen hard and, and work harder. Um, and so, yeah, I found myself looking at all sorts of weird, wonderful companies. I think uh, one that came up when we met was the Circus. Um, well, I mean, well, David, I'm gonna, let's put a pin in that because I want to hear. Um, there was a number of weird and wonderful companies, and I want to spend true. a minute on on them. Yeah. Um, but t tell us what was the business that your dad had. So he basically was a, effectively a kind of a, uh, what you would call now a kind of a 1099 employee. So he was uh, an, uh, an international operator for French wine companies. So oh. um, he became their UK limited or UK LLC um, and, uh, and kind of ran their international operations for a bunch of small to medium sized wineries to enable them to approach kind of export markets essentially. Um, and did you see him as then self-employed? I mean, my impression yeah, he was, was that he, he was, had his own business. Yeah, I mean, he was, he's, it was essentially his own marketing business, but he was also essentially yeah. kind of like a, uh, an employee, but he wasn't running wineries. Um, he wasn't um, actually running the, that, the core businesses that he was representing. Um, he was running their representation in other markets. So, um, but it still okay. meant that, you know, he had to, file accounts, he had to figure out which clients he wanted to get after, he had to, you know, get out and, and make his way in the world. So he had to be proactive and, and, and that, that was at least uh, informative. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it, it reminds me of how you felt like just getting out into the world was a little bit more um, what drew you versus mm. going to, what did you say, the city of London? Is, is that yeah, the, exactly. the, the title for the high finance world in London? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's the same, but it's what we call Wall Street, essentially. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it, it, it definitely resonated more. And and David, the your decision now to buy a business and you're 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 in your mid thirties, um, as you pointed out in 2010, 2011, search, you know, capital S search is um I don't know if that term was even around then. It was certainly a very immature space. Of course, as we all know, people have been buying and selling businesses for a long time. You had that inkling, which is what turned you onto it. But there wasn't this well-trodden path. Still not very well-trodden, but certainly more than it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, how did, when you told other people in your world that you were going to do this, how did they react? And just personally and emotionally, was this, was this like a big decision? You're making it seem rather um, graceful and frictionless. But, but you know, just it's a, it's a giant decision. And as we'll find out, it, it, was, it was a huge pivot in your life. Yeah, so... Um, I'm sure it was stressful. I definitely got some interesting feedback from folks. Um, I have a very good friend here who works as a senior manager within Facebook or now Meta. 
And he just couldn't believe it. He was like, well, but why would you do that? You know, you could earn X hundred thousand, you know, doing what you've done before. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What's the advantage? Um, So it's interesting talking to him now 10 years later. Um, But I was also being kind of besieged to kind of go to the East Coast. And that was really the thing that I didn't want to do before I went traveling was, you know, come and uh, come and kind of run the come and run the company out of Boston. No thanks. I I I I moved out of a cold country. I now love living in a, in a warm <laughs> state, and I, I don't want to be somewhere where it can snow in April or May. Um, all uh, all love and, and affection for Boston aside, it's just not what somewhere I want to live personally. So yeah. so yeah, there was there was definitely people cautioning me against it, and there was definitely uh, can I pull this off? Uh, kind of question mark in my head. Um. But at the same time, I had just kind of almost made the decision inevitable by um, ripping up a career and going traveling for a year. Uh, mm-hmm. And then kind of, even though I'd come back and then work for another startup, um, I hadn't pursued, hadn't kind of, you know, lined up the next job and, and marched into it. And in fact, I had to pop back to the, to the UK for four or five months to, to nurse my dad. So um, there, was, there was some natural breaks there that, that kind of, were pushing me as well. Um, and also was encouraged by what I saw. Um, there were definitely some sensible businesses out there. And, and you know, in the days of, of kind of, you know, two and three multiples for, um, for kind of really pretty decent sized, certainly a decent sized business to a solo operator, um, it seemed I could make more money and have more fun. And I was really looking for income, interest, and independence. Those are my kind of three watchwords. Um, and, and yeah, it was a bit kind of over quaint the way that they were all started at I, but it, it really kind of boiled down to it's like, okay, <laughs> I need to, need to p- provide for myself. Um, but I also want to have some interest. I want to do something interesting. I don't want to just kind of keep, um, farming money in, um, and, uh, and, and not really enjoying myself. Um, and then the independence part of it was, I didn't really feel much independence whenever I was working for another company, even. Um, what's that saying in the in the Star Wars movie? There's always a bigger fish, and there mm. there there is. You know that you're always working for. There's another boss, and then another boss, and, mm-hmm. and then there's the mm-hmm. owner, and so on and so forth. And um, and even though I was getting to reasonably senior levels of, of small companies, I I just never felt like I was I was kind of really running my own show. Um, it was great to work as a as a team, but I, I've I've really enjoyed doing my own thing. So I could I could feel that and see it. Yeah. Well, those three ing- interest, um, income, inter- and independence, interest, income, and, and, and independence. Income is the one I was missing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, interestingly, I think that not interestingly, I think those are the three um, characteristics that are probably common to to most entrepreneurial ventures. Um, you know, those are those are big. So, and I I would concur with those. I, I love how neat and quaint that is. The three eyes. You you may have just uh, trademarked something that I'm going to use and reuse. Top of the list for most acquisition entrepreneurs after they close on the business is digital marketing. Is the business doing it properly or at all? Has the website been touched since 2005? In many cases, that website is going to need an overhaul. Eversite is a firm that works with searchers to do custom redesigns of their websites for a flat monthly fee. So you don't need to spend down your precious working capital for a custom redesign of the website. That and all ongoing support is baked into their monthly fee. So your website cost is simple and predictable month after month 
with the assurance of knowing that you can ping the folks at Eversight for any changes you might need. And you will talk to a human. Call or email your Eversight rep, make a request, and expect your changes live in hours, sometimes minutes. There is so much going on when you transition that business you buy. Make the website management easy by putting it in the capable hands of Eversight. Check out eversight.com slash searchers, E-V-E-R-S-I-T-E dot com slash searchers. Okay, so you turn online, you see you're, you're making us all envy with these, these multiples that you're talking about back in 2010. Um, and you see some, as you said, respectable businesses uh, or some respectably sized businesses. Now, now, now tell us about some of these businesses you didn't buy. A circus? Yeah, so we, first off, there was, uh, there was this kind of sea of companies kind of coming my way and I had to narrow my search and, and, and I had to kind of stop and really sit down and think, okay, what was it that I was looking for? Um, and so I started to try and narrow down uh, as much as possible without narrowing down the sector, um, which is how most of the, the searches were kind of defined by narrowing down for, you know, for size and for operations and ownership and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think I did three or four LOIs, one, um, uh, guitar based, bass guitar kind of accessories company, uh, one window screens, um, kind of online custom sized window screens, um, replacement window screens company, uh, one tutoring company, uh, one medical staffing company. Um, and each time I kind of pull back for a subsequently kind of good reason. But I learned an awful lot in doing that. Know what was safe and what was not and where the gotchas were and where the, the skeletons might be and, and how to analyze SDE properly. Um, and um, actually one of the key lessons came, which worked out really well for the Wines and Vines company. I remember speaking to my software company CEO the time that, that, that he was kind of in acquisition talks. And he said, it's amazing, this big company comes in and they don't want to see the P&Ls and the balance sheets and all the stuff we create. They just want to see the bank statements. And I was like, it kind of, again, logged a, logged a memory in me. And, and, and so I would do the same thing as I'd get into, into this diligence process and as quickly as possible, I'd say, I just need to see the bank statements. Hmm. And I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, it, it just cuts through the crap, basically. Um, you're just seeing kind of whether this, these cash flows are real or not. Um, and are there positive cash flows? Um, and so, hmm. yeah, I, um, I, I walked away from a couple of companies where there was just, you know, there was, it looked really good on a P&L, um, but didn't look so good uh, from, from another lens. Um, so anyways, I started to kind of teach myself as to, you know, what might be good and what it might, might not be, um, whilst also kind of still having a bit of a wild hair at my ass to do something kind of fun and wacky. So, um, you know, <laughs> uh, customized window screens may not sound that wacky, but um, it did involve getting on the plane to see a company in, in Texas that kind of were doing just that. And I'd never even been to Dallas and, and, and all of those people in that company just looked at me like I was a complete alien. But I'm, I'm used to looking like the alien in America and particularly in, <laughs> in certain parts of America, I'm, I'm kind of typically greeted like that, as we mentioned with the corn farmers in Iowa. So, um, so yeah, 
the adventures were were kind of were varied, but but you know I I, I was quite happy to kind of look at, at some crazy stuff. Um, the circus one popped up because um, well, I just saw it. I thought, well, that's a that's perhaps not such a bad business, but, but let's see. Uh, you know, what's the harm in in kind of faxing an NDA because this. You know, again, old school stuff like every NDA. Faxing an NDA. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it was one of the the biggest bits of friction to the whole process. Um, so anyway, faxed the the uh, the NDA over. Back comes this business, and and actually the circus was kind of sensible. It was basically a rip off or or kind of a second city Cirque Soleil. Mm -hmm. um, so if Cirque Soleil was showing up in San Francisco, they were in Sacramento. <laughs> or if, uh, if Cirque Soleil were in Sacramento, they were in, you know, in Reading up the road. They were basically kind of doing the cities that Cirque Soleil didn't get to. And they were using a lot of the same staff, uh, the same talent, basically. Oh. Um, and the same even kind of choreographies. Um, and, uh, and they had an awful name. But um, it seemed to me with a bit of branding, uh, a bit of better marketing, kind of, uh, you know, a decently paid choreographer and, and, and designer, and uh, maybe I could kind of turn this into something that I'd actually want to go see. Um, and it also scratched that traveling itch, right? Um, yeah. This, this is a horrendously organized company. I mean, they, they had run the whole company on credit cards, so asking for bank statements was, was kind of, oh, it was fraught. Um, but the, um, yeah, they did have a tour booked to, to Brazil and to, Argentina and Australia. I was like, okay, uh, this, this, this sounds like fun. Um, all the ports of call that you had been at in your, in your gap yeah, exactly, year, you were going to yeah. get to return totally. to. You know, and again, at that stage, I was not married, didn't have a kid. Um, and this just sounded like a shitload of fun. So I was, oh. I was all, all about it for a while. Until well, I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who maybe not very seriously, but have had sort of the fantasy of running away with the circus. Right. Anybody who hasn't had that fantasy probably thinks that sounds so strange, yeah. but I totally understand, you totally. know, the, the romance of something like that. So what, what, what's better than running away with the circus than just buying the thing and, and being the guy <laughs> who owns it? <laughs> right. I guess I was a late bloomer. Most kids kind of dream of running away the circus at age seven. I was just doing it at age 35. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I decided to uh, to give that one a miss, but you know, carried on looking, and and um, you know, there was plenty of other interesting companies that that didn't get to uh, LOI stage. Um, chocolate companies. Tell us, tell us about the dating the dating businesses early uh, early on the dating yeah, so days. That was another form, a, a lesbian dating company, uh -huh. and to me, that looked like a great business, right? They built a machine which, you know, uh, attracts members. Uh, they've now got um, not only the machine that operates the site, but effectively the kind of the membership and, and the kind of the marketing operations set up. And they get revenues every single month, um, like clockwork on the first day of the month, bang, hits the bank account. Um, and having worked for a software company, I was pretty aware of that, um, that advantage, right? Software companies have very, very strong finances. There's a reason that the multiples have gone bananas in the last few years. Um, it's just that their, their, their finances are great. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, this lesbian dating site, I was like, okay, well, it's like a software company. Uh, there's the recurring revenues. Um, trouble was it was a lesbian dating site and I couldn't exactly be the kind of, you know, the, the, the front of house. The face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. The face <laughs> um, I have someone somewhere in the world to apologize for though, because when I was trying to test the site out, um, 
I I uploaded a dear friend of mine, this lady who lives in Spain. Um, I uploaded her photo to the site um, and just kind of tested out. You know, what's it like? Yeah, um, yeah. I got a we got a date, um, oh. which we had to decline. Um, so yeah. Did you decline or ghost? Early ghosting. I'm, I'm Early lesbian sure, ghosting. <laughs> pretty sure I declined and and ran screaming, and at that point realized <laughs> what what the hell am I doing? Um, so yeah, there was that, and then there was also the the farmer dating site, um, which subsequently turned into a pretty decent business. Um, yeah, they. Uh, you well, you said you said that it showed back up in what was it in the Super Bowl? It was kind of uh, like a rinky, some, was, what some, appeared to be a rinky dink, very niche dating site, and then. That's right. Yeah. So I, I looked at, I looked it up and I said, okay, imagine I'm a farmer in Iowa and I want a date. You know, where's my nearest date? And, uh, and it said, you know, 150 miles away. Mm. And I know those guys are prepared to kind of travel some distances, but that seemed just non-functional and, and kind of really just not a good plan. So, um, so yeah, I, I dismissed it and walked away, but I did enjoy learning a little bit about the business. They had a great line. Uh, which was because city folk just don't get it. Uh, and that was literally the strap line within advertising. Because if you're a farmer and you're you know, trying to date someone in the city, they say, oh, you know, let's go for coffee at nine o'clock at night. Like uh, the farmer says, I'm in bed by then because I'm up at four yeah. you know, on the combine harvester or whatever. Um, so, yeah, they, there's this kind of farmers dating farmers, which makes great sense. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah something like five. Seven, I don't know how many years later, I'm, I'm watching San Francisco 49ers in a bar on some playoff game and up pops this advert because city folk just don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. Someone marched in where I, I feared to tread and they made a success of it. So yeah. congratulations I guess the 150-mile dating distances wasn't a problem after all. Right, yeah. Or maybe they're <laughs> down to 15 now, but uh, yeah, um, it was it was fun, fun to see. But yeah, so I moved on from dating businesses, but and I was just looking everywhere for a... God, I don't even remember how long it was, but it was maybe a year of, of searching. Mm -hmm. um, it was fascinating and fun, but um, it was starting to get a bit frustrating towards the end of it. Um, and maybe that's the first time that I actually really felt kind of some doubt. It's like, you know, am I, am I going to be able to kind of find something that kind of fits my search? Or have I, am I just wasting a year of my life? Mm -hmm. um, again, I had saved the money, so uh, and it, I wasn't spending it quickly so it, it wasn't kind of dwindling fast but it, it, i definitely remember thinking that you know that was the kind of the tough end of the search david and can you, i ask you what your financial picture looked like and tie that into the fact that you you were not intending to do an sba loan uh yeah i mean without getting into the the specifics i i saved a, a good wedge from from being in, in a reasonably highly paid software um salesperson then exec for a while so um so yeah I, and i'd spent some traveling i spent some made some more coming back um but you know i i, I had uh, hundreds of thousands of, of dollars to my name kind of mm -hmm. um i think close to close to seven figures and um or around that mark and, and and therefore you know i i was looking at businesses that involved loans and also businesses that could be bought just beneath that so, so you were entertaining an SBA like you would have done the SBA. Okay, yeah. I, I I jumped ahead. I know you ultimately didn't, so I assumed that you never were intending it, but you were open to it. And 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 also just to uh, again kind of like <clears throat> um, explore a little bit where your head is at. So the model of financing, you know, buying something for ten or twenty percent down, 
financing the rest and paying for it out of the profits of the business. This kind of LBO model um, was something that you understood at the outset or you learned and were pleasantly surprised by, or like, what was your sophistication about what the structure of your deal might look like? Well, I had a, a, a widely kind of set search, both for kind of companies um, around the kind of the basically half million and up, I think was, was around where it was at mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, purchase price. Um, but yeah, the, the structure was, um, rather the sophistication that you ask about was, was kind of rising, but not, um, not there initially. Um, I, uh, I was kind of backing my gut rather than going in there with a kind of a, a preset criteria. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. But at some point you do learn about the SBA loan and, or, yeah. or seller financing. So you know that financing may well be part of what you, yeah, what totally. you do. I, okay. I, I, uh, I mean, I knew about getting bank loans. I knew about getting equity investors. Um, I just, I didn't know that much about the SBA to start with, but you know, you, you speak to one broker, you learn that quite quickly. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. Carry on. So, so we're at the, we're at the tail end of a year. You're starting to get a little bit concerned, a little mm -hmm. bit frustrated. Yeah. Antsy. And then at this, at this time I had a, uh, an LOI, um, I think it had just been accepted, um, for a medical staffing company. Um, and, um, the three, three months previously, I had been to see a, been to see a wines and vines company, um, and kind of found a, should we say a, a hole in the numbers, um, where the, the bank statements just didn't, didn't tally with kind of the, the PL numbers. Um, and so I, I said to the owner of that company, I like your business, but, um, it's, it's massively overpriced. Um, and just for your interest, this is what I think it's worth. Um, and thank you very much for spending some time with me. Um, but I'm going to you know, pursue my search elsewhere. Um, and so fast forward three months, um, the, the broker came back to me and said, look, uh, I don't know what you're doing, but you know, the, the owner wants to talk to you again and talk to you about your, your kind of revised level of kind of valuation. Um, and so at that point we, you know, reactivated conversations and, and going back to the point about interest, um, being part of the search, running a wines and vines company sounded a bit more fun than the medical staffing. So I, I just asked those guys to, to bear with me. Um, and, uh, whilst I kind of went into to deep due diligence on the, on, on the, the wines and vines company. And I've been interested in it at first, partly because as I mentioned, dad had been in, in the wine business. Um, but it was, I think it was more just kind of academic interest than actual interest at first. It's like, well, well you know, what's a guy like me going to be doing with a the winery? There's an old saying in the wine business that if you want to make a small fortune, you start with a large one. Mm -hmm. Um, and that. Uh, I gather it's 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 studied in some business schools as the worst business model ever invented. <laughs> sure. So, um, yeah, or that just behind restaurants, you know, and the classic right. and the classic vanity business, right? Yeah, Rich guy or might... gal buys a restaurant or a winery, mm -hmm. and then you know starts with a starts with a large fortune and, and ends with a small one. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be even worse than restaurants because um, it's so capital, time, and labor intensive, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, particularly within capital, not just because of kind of land and, and equipment, but also because it takes several years to either grow vines or take the vines and the fruit that you've grown um, and then release it onto, onto a market. And then it's also an ultra competitive, basically low margin market. So 
Um, heap of money up front, very little money out the back. Perfect recipe for disaster. Um, yeah. But it's wow. also it also had my interest, um, and so yeah, when I when I first looked at it, it 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 was surprisingly good business. It was a it was a winery with a vineyard management attached, kind of vineyard management business attached to it. So they had a small kind of sideline where they weren't um, they weren't buying fruit, and they weren't growing their own fruit. They were basically farming small uh, estates in the hills above Silicon Valley and letting those people become kind of wine growers uh, and make wine for them, but also take the surplus wine they didn't need and, and you know, pushing it out through their own winery. So anyway, it was, a, it was marketed as a, as, a, as a winery, but I really saw a vineyard management company. Um, and as a, uh, again, as a, essentially as a software company. Uh, here's a company with very heavily recurring revenues um, where I can predict this amount of revenue, I can predict this amount of, of business. And also, I think this is a growing market, right? There's, there's not, at the time, there was only 20 vineyards under management, 25 maybe. Um, and I could see, um, you know, that up in the hills above Silicon Valley, there's a lot of very, very fancy estates, um, a lot of you know, beautiful, beautiful properties where, you know, two swimming pools and, and, a, and a guest house later, what else are you going to do with that kind of spare acre in the corner? How are you going to keep investing in your home and property? Um, so it seemed to be a good business, the, the vineyard management side of it, residential vineyard management. Um, it sounds a little weird. It sounds a little idiosyncratic, right? Residential vineyards, but it, like, within yeah. this kind of weird world that I live in, in Silicon Valley, it kind of makes sense because there's a lot of money here. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of depth and breadth of, of, of wealth. Um, so I think it's an, an, an unusual business and un, very unusual location. I'm not sure it would work in any other city, uh, in America. Maybe someone will prove me wrong, but, um, but yeah, so I, I saw this vineyard management business da and thought, David, can I pause you yeah, there for a sec? So, so just to um, be completely explicit with the audience, this is essentially wealthy people who want for kind of whatever hobby or interest or investing in their property or vanity have a, set up, you know, wine, vines on their own property to, you know, kind of, you know, be able to be producing grapes for wine. And, and so you're managing those. So these are private little, you know, on right. these estates, private residences. These are not, these are not commercial wineries. These are residential hobby kind of high. I hate to, that kind of diminishes it, but kind of like hobby, uh, vines, right? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is, uh, entirely residential private owners of private estates, some serious, serious properties and some serious people, um, who have done very well in the world and, and, and have not only property in, in one of the most expensive parts of the world, but also have enough property to consider putting a vineyard on, on a part of it. Uh, um, making my, my eyes water at the, at the thought of how much this, some of these, <laughs> how much one of these people have. And, and so they, and so you, um, you had said that there's kind of, there were kind of two businesses there. The, the, the vineyard management is what turned you on, but there was also a proper winery. Do you remember kind of the split of those two businesses? Was it like, 
Yeah. Do Do you remember? Was the vineyard management something that you know the, the previous owner had and didn't realize how attractive it was, and it was just a little part of the business? You anticipated growing that a ton, or yes, you know, I, what, I, what I, was I don't that? I remember about? the split of revenue. I, I would guess it was maybe kind of sixty winery, forty vines. Um, but um, mm. you know, the winery wasn't very big either. The mm-hmm. guy had done a great job of getting it started, but basically kind of run out of legs and inspiration, um, mm-hmm. and uh, he was. You know, he was pulling his hair out. There's just, you know, there's a lot to do. Uh, a winery yeah. is a complicated business to run. So, um, so yeah, it, he, he knew that was the, the good part of his business financially. Um, no. He had started off and had started that business deliberately um, and uh, had very cleverly kind of made sense of, of a kind of a very tricky wine market by putting a, a vineyard, management or vineyard management operation alongside it or inside mm-hmm. it. So yeah, it was a uh, it was an unusual business, right? It's like we're yeah. talking about a winery. What, what do I want to be owning a winery for? It's, it's like even more bananas. And then the kind of the, the friends that we referred to previously are kind of cautioning in my ear. Well, you know, it sounds fun. Get me some wine, but what the hell are you doing? Yeah, um, yeah. So, <laughs> and then other friends who were absolutely a commercial or uncommercial. They thought, ah, oh, Jacko, that sounds so much fun. You know, of course, what you should totally do that. That sounds completely you. Um, you know, I was getting all sorts of kind of wild and woolly advice, but it was basically me that had to sign the check. Um, and then, you know, um, step in there on day one and, and try and figure out what the hell to do next. Um, so I've signed a few big checks in, in life. You, we, we all do, you know, the, you know, your first house or whatever else. Um, but that, that was a, that was a, it's a tricky one to, uh, to get to the point of comfort. Um, but ultimately I did. And, um, and yeah, there was quite a few surprises when I walked through the door. And I'm sure that's not an uncommon thing for your listeners. Um, yeah, there was, there was a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the old principle is caveat emptor, right? Beware, buyer beware. Sure. And in due diligence, you're expected to, to find all of the, all of the kind of, uh, all of the mines in the field. Um, but ultimately within what, due what diligence. What mines caught you that you didn't, that you didn't find in, uh, your, in your diligence? I don't think I want to get into too much detail um, on okay. that because it'd be you know, unkind to the, the prior owner, but there were some surprises, some significant surprises. Within due diligence, you're verifying, 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 but you're still ultimately relying on, on, on what someone's telling you. Um, and their version of of uh, of their business, and they're trying to sell. So yeah, day one, the, the due diligence process continued um, in, in a big way, trying to figure out you know <laughs> where stuff was and how stuff was being done, and and, and the reality of certain situations. So um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, an ongoing voyage of discovery, and not least because even though my dad had worked for wine companies, I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. Um, I had had never delivered wine through the back door of a supermarket, which I was soon doing. I had never um, been the harvest intern for the winemaker, which I was soon doing. And it was basically me, a winemaker, and a vineyard guy. That was it. And so I was the delivery driver, the kind of the uh, yeah, the, the kind of the harvest hand, the, just basically everything, kind of year one, um, and um, and and so learned the business. Um, so well, really uh, D- oh, David, let me, let me, a couple yeah. of questions here. So, um, 
so you 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 had just going back to the transaction really quickly. You had pointed out to him, hey, you know th these numbers don't add up. This is really what it's worth. He comes back to you, says, okay, let's talk. Um, I assume you acquire for something closer to what you said the valuation was, um, and you did not finance it. You did at least not with an SBA loan. Was there seller financing at all, or was it just? No, it was tell a, me about essentially yeah. a one hundred percent kind of cash purchase. I left him a small percentage of the business. Um, which was my way of, of trying to uh, ensure his, uh, his kind of fidelity and cooperation. Okay. And um, the, and so the business was literally three people large. It, it felt that way. I think actually there was remembering it. There was two people on the vineyard operation. There was the winemaker, there was myself, and there was also actually there was an office manager. Um, and, and then there was, you know, other, other folks that kind of worked for the company, including the, um, the lady who was the wine broker. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was essentially, it was a kind of an upper six figure deal. Um, but it was a, it's still a pretty raw company. It, it had kind of proven its market and proven its kind of, um, its operations it proven its ability to make a profit or be a small one. Um, but it was still very, very nascent um, in its market and operations. And how old was it? Uh, not entirely sure. That's that was one of my first questions. But um, but yeah, it seemed like its first four years, so probably eight years old. Um, uh, even though it had a, a different date above the um, above the door. Okay, and. Just looking back, I mean, you you were self-educating this whole time. We've already talked about how, you know, a lot of the searcher best practices were probably not established or, or at least certainly not well publicized at the time. And one of those things that you hear constantly today is about, you know, buying above a certain size business, um, you know, and kind of the sweet spot is 600 to 800,000 SDE, um, which of course is hard to find, but uh, great if you can get it. This business was, uh, I assume, quite a bit less than that. No management layer. I mean, we, you're, you're, if you're the one doing the driving the delivery truck, clearly. So um, did that, you know, you were, I guess you were signing up for that. You saw what that was going to be like. Do, do you think in retrospect that you took a, like a much bigger gamble than you realized you were taking at the time or, you know, kind of would you... Would you do it over again? I guess, I guess just kind of like weigh in on the size of business yeah, that you so bought. To, to me, it didn't feel like that much of a risk because of the recurring revenues, because of mm -hmm. the market opportunity for the vineyard management, at least, um, because of the kind of it, the fact that the wine, at least, was well-received and clearly the winemaker knew what he was doing. Um, and also because I wasn't taking on any debt. Um, so, yeah, I was throwing down a, um, a lot of money. Um, Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of folks are kind of cautioned against buying a job. Um, don't buy a company exactly. with less than 500K. Exactly. You're just buying yourself a job. Like, well, of course you're buying yourself a job. You're buying yourself a job at any scale. You know, this idea of a kind of a completely kind of, you know, uh, arm's length or kind of armchair business um, where you're not heavily involved. Um, that's that's fine way way further up the kind of the the value chain you know 50 mil plus but below that um even if it's a pe buyer they're some, they're making sure someone is is heavily involved um so yeah I, I was buying myself a job um for 
few hundred thousand um, worth of kind of profit. And um, it was uh, it, it was a, a lot of headaches, but that was just just what I wanted, right? I wanted to kind of get in there, get inside the muck and bullets, as we call it, mm -hmm. in England, and uh, um, and figure out how to how to grow this thing and how to how to make it you know more successful and more fun. Ah, I love that. It's so gritty and entrepreneurial, uh, and and I think just kind of oriented for my, toward in the same way that my personality is. Um, but your you know vice president buddy at uh, at Meta uh, or wherever he was at the time uh, probably was just feeling like you know the fact that you were going to be not only buying a business how crazy but you know driving the delivery truck. Uh, I mean, what, it just gets yeah, crazier just, and crazier by the, by the moment, David. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to be clear, there wasn't even a delivery truck, right? Um, I, I was basically shoving wine in my, uh, in my trunk and, and, and running it around the place. Um, so, <laughs> right. uh, you know, um, even better. Okay. Yeah. Carry, carry on. So yeah, it was fun. We were, I learned a lot. I started to try and learn as much as possible, particularly about vineyard management and started to assemble a, a good team. Um, but yeah, at first I couldn't afford a vineyard manager. No way. I mean, you know, I could it just kind of destroyed my margin. So um, I started getting more vineyards uh, under management and started learning what I was doing. But but basically, I was kind of doing the uh, the classic old adage of fake it till you make it, mm -hmm. being out there and telling people that I had a great team. I did, um, um, but one under very little actual supervision or direction. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and getting convincing them to let me manage their vineyard or install a new vineyard for them. Um, and so once that started to kind of reach a, a little bit more uh, sufficient size, hired the first vineyard manager or promoted the first vineyard manager. Um, and then a few years later, kind of hired an, an excellent one. But basically in all kind of all of the different business lines, because within the winery there's an events business, there's a direct-to-consumer business, there's a wholesale business, there's a vineyard construction business, there's a vineyard management business, there's like five different kind of business lines. Um, and it's been quite hard to, to keep it that focused, frankly, because um, there's always someone in your ear telling you that, you know, you really ought to do this and you really ought to do that. And why don't you spend a lot of money um, setting up a tasting room or in another city or in a touristic area or uh, you, you can kind of, you can go bust very quickly kind of without focus in, in any business, but particularly uh, within, again, within wine. So, um, so yeah, we, uh, we tried really hard to get excellent people in place um, and to focus on um, not just the right kind of business opportunities and projects um, to kind of evolve how we did things, but also um, to, to really make sure that we had very, very, very happy customers and very, very happy employees. And with those two things kind of combined with the focus, I don't think you can go too far wrong. Um, and um, yeah, I look at the business now and it's now five times the size. It, it has a really <coughs> excellent management team, um, a really good events person, a really good vineyard person, an excellent winemaker, um, and a really good operations person. And, and I'm, I'm proud of, of where we've come from and where we've got to, even though there's plenty kind of ahead. Um, but I think one of the things I'm most proud of actually is, is some of the testimonials on the, on the vineyard management website, um, where I just see people saying, Hey, you know, your, your, your crews are always really happy and, and, you know, they're, they come to our vineyard and they're you know, laughing and chatting and joking, um, and they do a killer job. 
Um, and you guys really, really, really know what you're doing and, and you provide a great service and thank you. And, and that's kind of how I hope all of our, our customers feel. Um, they certainly seem to when we ask them. And so, so yeah, we're, um, we're, we're now kind of on a, uh, on a different level than we were then, but you know, this is 10 years later. Um, and, uh, there's a few, few hard battles and a few misses and a few mistakes, uh, certainly a few mistakes. Um, but, but we're, we're definitely making headway. Well, David, everybody would love to own a small business where the customers are thrilled and, and even better, the employees are, are thrilled and happy and fulfilled and always smiling. Uh, but easier said than done. What, what, what's the secret there? Well, with the employees, um, there's so many folks. I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? Because I basically decided that I don't want to be an employee anymore. Um, and part of the reason for that is I think employees are always valued just up to the, to the amount of money that would stop them from leaving if they're valued. Um, so, you know, you don't pay, you don't pay someone what they're, they're absolutely definitely inherently worth to your business so much as kind of like how much they could either be replaced for or kind of like kept in place for. And it's sad, but it's true right across the world. So, um, the um the you know i can't play i can't pay our employees absolutely everything that, that i would love to pay them but i do pay them well um and um i learned from a very good um kind of senior manager or kind of ceo within the software world um it's one guy that i work for kind of on and off but but fairly consistently for kind of for 10 years in, in multiple countries and he was really, really good at, at, at communicating people about what they needed to do in order to earn more for him. <laughs> um, and it was all, always about more responsibility um, and more re- kind of recognition and, and reward for results. And so if you can put more results together and you can take on more responsibility, I will pay you more. And so <laughs> I try and communicate that to, to, to my team, be they vineyard workers or, or you know, the head of vineyard management, or, you know, people in between or in other functions. It's like, you know, I, I can't pay you the kind of the, the earth here. We, we work for a winery. Um, we don't work for a hedge fund. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, here's where it pay you. I believe it's good. Do you believe it's good? Great. We're on the same page. Here's how we go forward. Um, mm-hmm. And if you take on more responsibilities and you take on uh, more um, facets of, of the business and, and kind of help me focus where I want to be spending my time, um, then, then I will pay you more. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's treating people with kind of openness and respect and paying them as much as, as, as you can. Um, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound very controversial or, or, or insightful perhaps, but it's just, yeah, it's just kind of decency towards them. And then also just making it fun, right? I mean, how many bosses have, have you had that have been zero fun? You know, they can <laughs> suck the air out of a room. Um, at a hundred paces, it just beggars belief that they're in charge of people. There's just nobody <laughs> enjoys working for them, right? Uh, there's, and then there's the other category of folks who like it actually make things fun. You know, they, they've got a good wit or a charm or a something about them that makes them somewhat engaging. Um, now, is that is that just your personality, David, or are you doing things like you know the weekly pool party? Not literally. But, I'm not you know, is, is it I'm... is it planning activities or is it just? <laughs> 
bringing a good attitude and, and being a, you know, a halfway interesting person. Yeah, and I'm not saying I'm entirely in the second camp. I'm sure I can suck the air out of a room as well, you know, particularly if, uh, <laughs> if it's a, another vineyard meeting at 6.30 in the morning when they start, but um, or when we all start. So, yeah, the, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's treating people with kind of compassion, kindness, and a, and a, and a, and a bit of humor um, and, uh, mm. and getting them on board with what you're trying to do. Um, now, I've gone from a world where it used to be PowerPoints to clients and PowerPoints to kind of, you know, to employees and lots of, you know, webinars and seminars. And, and, and I haven't seen a PowerPoint. Um, I certainly haven't created a PowerPoint for, for 10 years. Um, and we don't have meetings. We kind of like talk to each other when we see each other. Um, um, and it's, you know, the winery is actually kind of quite a communal place and there's a bar and it kind of, you know, it, it, it leads to, to folks relaxing a little bit. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm assisted by that, but I, I feel like you, you can make it endlessly formal, um, and endlessly anal, um, or <laughs> you can make it really kind of just a little bit more compelling, a little bit more human. Um, and if you're organized enough and that's rather than being some kind of, you know, charming kind of entrepreneur who can kind of, you know, uh, be a Pied Piper and, and lead people on some merry dance. And just organized guy. I uh, incessantly yeah. kind of like long to-do lists. And those lists include kind of, you know, what, what I'm trying to do with, with people, um, um, where, I'm, where I'm trying to get their business or their, their kind of function. Um, so, yeah, by, by being... Um, somewhat ruthlessly organized um, and, and just trying to kind of be decent. Um, I think I think we have a good and happy team. Um, David, I have to I have to ask not to take away from not to take any credit away from you, but um, does it help being in the booze business? <laughs> well, one thing that really helps being in the booze business is that um, no one is pissed off. All right. So you know, <laughs> anybody who walks through the door is in immediately their best selves. Um, <laughs> within software, if you know some piece of software doesn't work or it's too expensive or something, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of crabby behavior, and that that kind of there isn't much of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having having plenty of wine helps in in other ways. It's it's a good way to kind of you know to to thank and and and, and child people for sure. But um, but yeah. I, the most wine I drink these days, um, other than kind of just for my own enjoyment is at six 30 in the morning. So that's when the vineyard crews start. Okay. That's when, that's when they prefer to get the kind of the, the jump on the day. And that's where they, they kind of, when we all meet up. Um, and that's when the winemakers tend to shove wine in my face for tasting because it's before coffee. Um, and it's before breakfast <laughs> and it's with the palate clean, so to speak. Um, and so, so yeah. I am. Um, I'm not getting soaked at six thirty in the morning, but um, but you know, I quite regularly have a glass of wine. Maybe a little buzzed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, here I I'm smiling ear to ear just listening about it, listening to it. So I, I can imagine that your your employees are smiling a lot. Yeah, um, we have a we have I, a good time. Yeah, we have a good time, and they're good people. And if there's some there's some bad apple, we we, we get when we ask them to leave. Um, we've had plenty yeah. of bad apples that, that just didn't fit, didn't gel, and piss people off. Like, okay, see ya. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, David, I want to turn to a slightly less um, 
less levity here and back back to the numbers uh, in those early early days because I, I just it's it's important for people to um, have specifics to think about these deals and, and these acquisitions. Do you remember what your own take home, your own SDE was that first year in the business? I mean, were, were you taking a significant pay cut from your software? Jo I assume you were because you were earning very well in in software land. But were you at least so making six figures in day one in the business? First year, I was really just investing and kind of patching up problems and, and putting more working capital into it than I thought um, I'd originally planned to. Uh, and it was six months more than a year because I, I ended up buying it midsummer. Um, so yeah, the kind of the rest of that six months was not a profitable time, and it was quite a scary time. Um, as I again learned some things and kind of you know figured out the wrinkles and and you know some of the in heightened levels of seasonality within the business, so on and so forth. Um, but then the the first full year. Yeah. Uh, things things went very well, um, and, and I don't want to get into um, SD specifics, um, but um, I didn't earn mm -hmm. as much as I as I had in software. But I also had you know plenty of money to kind of pay myself and and, and go out to eat. So uh, so yeah, it, it was fine fine from kind of six months onwards. And for how long was it that you were wearing all the hats? Not, not necessarily, you know, speaking beyond kind of the, the yeah, crisis absolutely. time, but like you, I assume you were still kind of like, you know, doing everything for even beyond when, the, when you kind of like acclimated to the kind of crisis and seasonality. How long did that last? Well, the first hire was probably, first significant hire was six to nine months after purchase. So I, um, the previous owner um, had managed something like 20 events throughout the year at the winery. And it seemed obvious that there was, a possibility to do more events. We're not in a kind of a touristic area. We're not in a kind of a street fall area. So we wanted to focus uh, our, our wineries opening and, and kind of public face on venue rental rather than people just wandering in for a, for a wine tasting and maybe buying a bottle of wine. We were much more interested in having the place full of 150, 200 people um, all having a great time and, uh, and, and drinking plenty of wine. So anyway, so we wanted to do more events um, and there'd only been 20 the previous year. So I started looking into it and started to realize also that the predominant folk booking events are women. Um, and um, I just felt that maybe the kind of the, the, the person to really kind of kick this on wasn't um, uh, a middle-aged English dude again. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, I found an <laughs> events director um, and... She agreed that there was a potential here, and but there was also it was very raw, and there was very few systems, and certainly no SOPs, and and you know she had to kind of figure out a lot, um, but she did a cracking job, um, and within two or three years we were up to having you know a hundred plus events, and it's since grown from there. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of the first person I chose to hire, and kind of first person I chose to invest in to replace myself and and then each year without it being kind of so rigidly um, um, scheduled like that uh, I was finding the money to invest in another person and, and another and another kind of uh, uh, another evolution of, of how we did things um, and to get mm -hmm. things off my plate um, I think one good principle for CEOs or, or you know business um, 
kind of you know, departmental managers or business owners, whoever. One good principle in general is try and kind of try and almost make yourself redundant. <laughs> try and yeah, stop sure. doing the kind of the day-to-day -day stuff and find some other way for that day-to-day -day stuff to get done. Um, the adage of, you know, work on the business, not in the business is, um, is really true for us all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've managed to kind of, through focusing on that principle, steadily kind of evolve the business and evolve the team and, and so grow the company. And you're now um, quite free and, and to the point where you're going to, you're searching again, which we're going to close with here in a second, but still a couple more questions. You had touched on how much growth there'd been. So when you bought the business, it was you and three or four other people. Now it's, um, you said a team of what, 15 or 20? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think the, the best answer is we're basically five times larger um, in almost every respect in terms of um, scale of operations and revenue of operations and profit of operations and, and so on and so forth. We're, we're, we're basically um, got to the point now where um, we are, um, yeah, kind of away from the early days and, 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 and to the point where um, the business is somewhat successful. Um, that's always a relative term, but it's doing okay. Um, and I can now decide, do I want to keep investing my time and capital in the business or do I want to maybe put some eggs in some other baskets? Um, there are definitely things I could invest in to kind of to secure the, the next stages of growth for the winery, but also for, for the vineyard management operation. Um, the, the, the thing that's good about the business now is that 60% of its revenue is recurring and 20% of it is re repeat. Um, so recurring from the vineyard management repeat from people who continue to buy our wines and stock their shelves with it. Um, and then 20% is, um, is kind of the event stuff, which is not repeat, but also, you know, um, reasonably reliable because there's enough businesses locally that, that, you know, want somewhere interesting to hold their, their events and enough people who want somewhere to party. So, um, it's pretty <laughs> steady. Um, and I could therefore kind of keep pushing myself and kind of, and, and those lines of business, those different kind of revenue streams, um, up and up and up, or I could say, okay, well, you know, what else is there to the left and right? Um, I can spend five days or I could spend 50 days. If there were 50 days in a week, I'm sure I could spend 50 days at, at the winery, but I also feel like I could compress it down to, to two and, and maybe even one with a different hire. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've been looking around for, for what might be next. Mm -hmm. And just going back to revenues, I don't know how public you can be about it, but is it fair to say that the business was, you know, a million dollars in revenue, give or take back then? And so now you're looking at more like a $5 million business. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm not into to sharing specifics, but <coughs> excuse me. Um, but yeah, we've, uh, we, we are definitely kind of five times that sub the size on, on, on revenues, um, and, uh, and on profits, um, yep. and, and hopefully on, on, you know, the kind of the enterprise value as well. Um, although that depends on multiples and some people say that. Uh, winery multiples are 
inflated, um, not just inflated, but, but high. Like you, you see some businesses, you know, changing hands for, for, for five plus. Um, um, but also there's not that many wineries, winery transactions that don't involve real estate. And, and therefore those mm. transactions are, are kind of difficult to kind of measure up against. Um, I don't <laughs> own any real estate. I don't own any vineyards. I don't own the winery. Uh, I'm, I'm a tenant. So, um, so yeah, we're, uh, we're doing fine and, and it's been great to see that, that growth. But, uh, um, I, uh, I feel like there's, a, there's another trick or two of me yet. So we'll see. <laughs> well, let's, let's close with that. Elaborate a little bit more. So you're, um, at least on your LinkedIn, you're a self-described searcher now. So I assume you're, you're somewhat actively looking around and this yeah. time around, will you, um, will you buy yourself a job? Well, you, you made a good point that like, of course, whatever, you know, anytime somebody buys a business, they're likely buying themselves 40 hours of work a week, if not more. So yes, you're buying yourself and, you know, something that's going to fill your time. But, um, I guess what I'm really asking is size of business. Will you, will, now that you've got a little bit of capital, a little bit of, of experience, do you think you'll go for something significantly bigger this time around or does it depend or what are you thinking? Yeah. So mm, my search has definitely got like evolved or set up. Um, on the basis of, of ideally looking for, for 500 plus SDE. Um, I don't really want to be um, stretching myself and putting kind of personal guarantees together for, for loans that are kind of, you know, for businesses that are maybe worth, you know, more than the two, three um, million level. That just, you know, that there's a, there's a limit to kind of my comfort and kind of ability to cross support kind of those levels mm -hmm. of debt. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm looking for kind of a, a bolt on, um, I think that bolt on, um, would be ideally of that size, but also it just depends on the business again. Right. So if I can find a really sensible business that's smaller than that, that I feel like I can grow to in that and enjoy doing it, then I'd, I'd be, be more than happy to, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, there's definitely a risk reward trade off, right. Um, there's a lot of folks that say, well, it has to be a certain size in order to be uh, to, to significantly change things like, yeah, well, it depends, you know, A, whose money you're using and, and, and B, what you're trying to achieve. So um, I, uh, I I think I'm realistic about the fact that be it a small, medium or large business within that kind of, you know, um, sub five million category, um, it's, uh, it's, it's always going to be a lot of work. It's, um, but, um, if I was putting, you know, the top end of that on the table, um, I would probably be wanting to spend 80 hours a week making damn sure it worked out. Um, mm -hmm. and at the lower end of the table, I can kind of, you know, I can, I can take a bit less, uh, um, less kind of intensity, uh, to a kind of a, a lower value company. And when you say bolt on, does that, does that mean it's going to become part of post and trellis um, or could it be something completely unrelated? Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, I'm, I'm looking, one of the main things I'm looking for is a maintenance company. Um, and there's lots of different forms of maintenance. Um, but I feel like within the vineyard management business, I've really figured out how to not the perfect way to, but ways to run a field service operations. So crews of people out there servicing and maintaining something. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, it would be a kind of a, a a bolt on, 
Um, but they would be separate entities and, and, and separate teams and separate everything. Um, but that's one part of, of, of my search and, and we'll see, see what I find. It, it might end up being a, a circus or a, or a chocolate company. We don't know. Although I'm not sure my wife would, uh, would agree <laughs> with the circus one so much anymore. <laughs> I love it. Well, David, what, what a, uh, what an adventure, uh, this last 10 or 13 years have been for you. And, yeah, um, exactly. Thank yeah, it was just really, really inspiring. Really, um, you know, you, you put the fun back in business, um, and really cool to hear that your employees seem to agree. And you know, it just I think a lot of people out there will be uh, envious of um, <laughs> just the the popping bottles that is your that is your life. I I, I know that's a little probably a little too rosy, but it, it sure seems fun. So anyway, thanks thanks a lot, sir, for coming on and sharing. And let me know when you make that second acquisition and, and we'll have you back sounds good well it's been really fun talking to you as always i wish you well and hope uh, you're settling in on the east coast though thanks a lot thanks a lot david till next time cheers